6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 2 Chronicles, chapters 9 through 12. Well, we're in 2 Chronicles, chapters 9 through 12, and this is just going to continue the Davidic dynasty. We'll have a chapter on Sol- the final chapter on Solomon, and then we'll get into Rehoboam and all of that. Now, First and Second Chronicles take the form of a history. David and Judah are the focal points because the emphasis is on the priestly and Levitical orders. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings are the historic, the, the the political record. First and Second Chronicles is the religious or, or priestly view of it all. Ezra and Nehemiah and Chronicles probably were written by the same. A collection of scholars or uh, scribes operating under Ezra, probably, um, and uh, because uh, Chronicles takes us up to the Babylonian captivity, Ezra, Nehemiah, what happened subsequently? So they're all together, and they obviously had access to a very substantial library because there's all kinds of letters accessed between all the major political uh, leaders of that time. And uh, from the point of view of the timeline that we had in Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. Uh, obviously, the monarchy starts with Saul and goes until the exiles of various kinds. And uh, 1 Samuel takes us up to uh, the beginning of David. 2 Samuel is really the story of David. It's parallel to 1 Chronicles, in effect. From Solomon on, we have 1 and 2 Kings. And in some renderings, obviously, 1 Samuel and 2 Kings are 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Kings in some Bibles, but it's the same, same material. And uh, 1 and 2 Kings split Elisha, Elijah and Elisha, actually. But anyway... Um, First Chronicles is really parallel to Second Samuel, and Second Chronicles will be essentially from Solomon on, right up to the Babylonian exile, and uh, where First and Kings dealt with both southern and northern kingdoms and how they fought and all those details, and are really the political, you know, the historical record. Chronicles really just focuses on uh, the the uh, southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, and so. Uh, we had in First Chronicles, obviously, nine chapters of genealogies and then the reign of David. In Second Chronicles, we had nine chapters that deal with Solomon. We're taking the ninth of those ninth chapters tonight. And then we're going to go right into the whole, con- the rest of it is uh, the continuing Davidic dynasty. The, uh, okay, so we're in the reign of Solomon. Original name was Jedidiah. Uh, Solomon was his royal name. And his pen name, uh, private name, uh, with Bathsheba was Lemuel, uh, many scholars believe. It seems to, and it's an inference, but it may be justified. And he's also calls himself the Coaleth, or the preacher for Ecclesiastes and so on. So he was, he was also a collector of dark sayings, as Proverbs 30 deals with. He was the second son, the surviving, first surviving son of Bathsheba, and uh, the first after their legal marriage in 2 Samuel 12, probably born about 1000, 1035 B.C., he succeeded his father on the throne, uh, probably as a late teenager, 16, 17 years old. And um, he was, his father, uh, uh, Nathan, and Bathsheba and Nathan recognized that Adonijah was getting ambitious and starting to declare himself as king. 
So uh, they encouraged David to cut that off by establishing Solomon as his successor before he dies, not wait for his death, which he did. Adonijah was the fourth son of David, and his elder brothers became, uh, you know, died, so he became the heir apparent, presumably. But um, Solomon, his younger brother, was preferred above him, as far as David's concerned. So Adonijah, while his father was dying, tried to uh, cause himself to be proclaimed king. But Nathan and Bathsheba headed that off by getting David to give orders that Solomon would be at once proclaimed and admitted to the throne. So that's why Solomon was a little young, but that's the way David wanted it, and so he headed off Adonijah. Adonijah uh, fled, but when apprehended, he received a pardon for his conduct as long as he showed himself a worthy man, according to 1 Kings 1.5. Well, he, tried to, he didn't learn. He tried a second attempt to gain the throne and was seized and put to death. His accomplices were also, however, were, were forgiven. Solomon still might have spared Adonijah, but there's an intrigue going on with Abishag, David's concubine, who probably was the person that's featured in the opera known as Song of Songs. But uh, anyway, Solomon was mer merciful to the rest of his brothers. And before his death, David gave him a whole list of things to do and gave him his instructions. That's all listed in 1 Kings. And then uh, Solomon arranges his affairs, marries the daughter of uh, Pharaoh of Egypt, and uh, the last half of his reign gets all messed up because he indulges in all these wives, 700 of them, plus 300 concubines, um, 1,000 women. Whew. But the problem is that they all brought with them their pagan practices, and he tolerates that, and that eventually that toleration uh, brings his downfall. So, it took seven years to build the temple, 13 years to build his royal palace, which was huge, and uh, in front of the house of the porch of pillars and so forth, then there was the house of the forest of Lebanon was, was a huge hallway for like an armory, if you will. And then in front of that was the hall of judgment and his throne room, and there was also a portion of it was set aside for the daughter of Pharaoh. So it was really... An awesome, awesome. Solomon is quite a builder. Now, typologically, Solomon is often overlooked in typological. All through, everything detail about him is littered in sixes. And uh, we want to be sensitive to that. We'll talk a little bit about that in this session. The Seal of Solomon is the ancient rendering of what is now known as the Magan David, the Shield of David. But that's a recent appellation uh, emerges from about the 14th century, that recently. Much earlier. It is known as the Seal of Solomon, and it was used by occultic practitioners. Who knows how we, we, it's very fragmentary. It's interesting how Solomon, all through the New Testament, is used in a diminutive sense. David is always extolled as great. Solomon was great, but not quite great enough. The lilies in the valley, you know, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He's always used as a standard that something else is exceeding. Anyway, let's move in. Uh, chapter 9, the visit of the Queen of Sheba. Now, this gal is quite a gal. Once you understand, she lives 1,200 miles away. There's no railroads, no airplanes, airplanes. When the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to prove Solomon with hard questions at Jerusalem, with a very great company of, and the camels that bear spices and gold in abundance and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. 
1,200 miles. She really must have had a yearning to find out what was behind all this fame. Here's a secluded Arabian queen that would break through the immemorial customs of her land and put forth the energy to brave the perils of a 1,200-mile journey on, the, on Beasts of Burden. Um, she carried it out safely. She must have wanted to come very badly. I hesitate to go 1,200 miles in an airplane. I have to want to very badly to do that. So anyway, she communed with him of all that was in her heart, and Solomon told her all her questions. And there was nothing hid from Solomon which he told her not. These two were apparently, the term we might use is intimate. There is a legend we're going to talk about that they gave birth to, uh, she gave birth to a son for Solomon that has, that is at least claimed to be the lineage all the way to Haile Selassie. We'll talk about that here in a minute. When the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel, his cupbearers also and their apparel, and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. She was filled with amazement. Now, she was a queen from southern part of Arabia. She was no country hick. She, she knew the game. And she saw his wealth and the uh, opulence there. She was blown away. And, uh, and she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in mine own land of thine acts and of thy wisdom. How be it, I believed not their words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the one half of the greatness of thy wisdom was not told me. For thou exceedest the fame that I heard. That's probably where we get that expression. The half of it wasn't even told me. She was told so much she didn't believe it, and that wasn't the half of it. That's really what the, the net of it is. That's pretty straightforward communication here. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee and hear thy wisdom. His staff apparently communicated joy, not oppression, not slavery, happy. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee to set thee on his throne to be king for the Lord thy God, because thy God loved Israel to establish them forever. Therefore made he the king over them to do judgment and justice. She's saying God must really love your people to give them a king like you. That's the flavor of what I think she's saying there. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold. Talents, about 70, 80 pounds, maybe 90. Hoo-wee. She brought car fare. Hmm? And of spices, great abundance, and precious stones, neither was there any such spice as the queen of Sheba gave the king of Solomon. And the servants also of Hiram, and the servants of Solomon, which brought gold from Ophir, brought algum trees and precious stones. 
And the king made of algum trees terraces to the house of the Lord and to the king's palace and harps and psalteries for singers. And there were none such seen before in the land of Judah. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which she had brought unto the king. So she turned and went away to her own land, she and her servants. We have no idea how long she was there. It wasn't just a, it wasn't a weekend visit. And yet we have no real idea. And that gives rise to, to this Ethiopian legend we're going to talk about. This isn't just a casual legend. It is the official belief. It's in the constitution of Ethiopia. The Ethiopians claim to the Queen of Sheba, as detailed in the famous epic Kebra Nagas, the glory of kings. And it's based on a visit described in the Bible, but adds that the queen bore a son, Menelik, Menelik I, if you will, to King Solomon. That's what's added to this epic. And uh, this epic is a 13th century, they traced it that far back, A.D. we're talking. So uh, when Menelik was grown, presumably, he visited his father, Solomon, who anointed him to rule Africa and sent the sons of his own counselors to assist Menelik as king. That's the concept. That's the story. And the young men were reluctant to leave the famous temple in Jerusalem, especially as it contained the Ark of the Covenant. So the legend is, is that they secretly removed the Ark of the Covenant and left a replica. And they took it with them to Ethiopia. And uh, that's the legend, the Ethiopian legend. It is an official view inculcated in the history of Ethiopia. It is quickly disprovable from the Bible. So you have most people who have encountered this legend. Graham Hancock wrote a book, The Sign and the Seal, and Grant Jeffries has written some stuff about it. Uh, Bob Cornuke and I, uh, Bob has really gotten to this. Bob and I have visited Ethiopia on several occasions. And so when you do that, you encounter this view of the Ethiopians. For centuries, the Ethiopian tradition has maintained, and it is still preserved and guarded in the compound, that the ark is in, guarded, still there, guarded in the compound. Now, the Ethiopian legend was compiled and recorded in writing during the 13th century, but its origin is difficult to determine. And uh, from the restoration of the Solomonic dynasty around, uh, 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 from the restoration to around 1270, until the death of the last emperor, Haile Selassie, the emperors of Ethiopia have claimed descent from Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Now, on the one hand, that's what the Ethiopians cling to, because those early kings promoted this tale because they, it benefited them to be able to claim direct descent from Solomon. You follow me? Haile Selassie did, at the, even as late as uh, 1975. Because biblical scholars can tell that that story can't be true, and I'll show you why, they dismissed the Ethiopian legend altogether. That's just their culture of tradition. What everyone, virtually everyone, has overlooked is just because the legend isn't true doesn't mean they don't have the ark. It may have gotten down there by a different path, and that different path is in Second Chronicles. It's in the text. It's tucked in there. It's subtle. You have, some you have to do some inferential reasoning, but it's quite surprising. So 
This isn't strong enough to be a doctrinal point to try to teach from, but I will tell you as candidly, we suspect, we don't know, we suspect they may really have the ark. They're just victims of a tale that was promoted for political reasons in their early history for local advantages. And uh, that doesn't mean that the ark ain't there because there's, arche there's archaeological proof that it is. And we'll get through that. Haile Selassie was born in 1892. He died in 1975. He was the grand nephew of Emperor Menelik II. He was the last emperor of Ethiopia. He, he, he uh, reigned from 1930 through about 1974 when he died. And the Solomonic claim was made part of the Constitution in 1955, obviously by Haile Selassie, who was writing things at the time. But recognize it was there an interest to promote this tale. It's widely regarded as non-biblical because the ark didn't disappear in Solomon's day or even after. There's a, we're going to go through a whole series of kings. You're going to get all the way down to Josiah. And when you get to Josiah, you're, about, uh, you're in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 35, the next to the last chapter in Chronicles. In the days of Josiah, he instructs the Levites to put the ark in the, in the Holy of Holies. Where is it? Why is it? That's the whole thing we'll get into. But the point is the ark is around there, you know, a couple of centuries after the story about Menelik having taken it from, you follow me? So we'll deal with that. And uh, furthermore, there's another aspect of this we'll talk about when we get there. Jeremiah 3.16 predicts that the ark will no longer remember, be remembered or come to mind. The ark, according to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 16, implies that the ark is a past, don't, don't look for it. It'll no longer be remembered nor come to mind. And I'm among those teachers who used to use that verse again and again to dispel the whole Ethiopian myth. People get here about it, get excited about it. We'd say, well, wait, look at Jeremiah 3.16. That says, don't, don't, don't bother with that. We didn't read the verses that followed it which change the subject a little bit, but give us some insight. So we'll deal with that when we get to it later. We're going to, re we're going to talk about some very surprising conjectures about the Ark of the Covenant in a later session. In the meantime, let's keep moving here. Chapter 9, Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 603 score and six talents of gold. That, incidentally, um, three score is 60, so you got 666 talents of gold. That's his annual salary. It's mentioned twice in the Scripture. When you get 666, anybody, as a Jewish rabbi will point out to you, anytime there's an unnecessary detail in a story, that's, like a, that's called a remez, which is like saying, dig here. It's a hint of something deeper. And anybody that studied the Bible, that, that knows nothing else about the Bible, all heard about 666 is somehow, I mean, we'll talk about that here in a minute. But it's interesting that 666, from a biblical text point of view, seems to be linked to Solomon himself, somehow. That's often overlooked by some of these prophecy buffs. Beside that which Chapman and merchants bought, all the kings of Arabia and governors of the country brought gold and silver to Solomon. In other words, he made a lot more than this. This was just his salary. That is just singled out for some uh, uh, spiritual purpose. The seal of Solomon has been found to be a very ancient symbol used by occultics. This thing here is a, is a set of signs that's supposed to help women from getting miscarriages. But the point is, it's in a context of Jewish mysticism, ancient, ancient Jewish mysticism. And in those days, many, many, many centuries ago, 
It was known as the Seal of Solomon. It reemerges in history about the 14th century where it's called the Shield of David and is adopted as a symbol of Judaism. And of course is re widely recognized that way today and that's why the Israeli flag has the Shield of David on it. That's not the official symbol of the State of Israel. You know what the State of Israel's official symbol is? The menorah. You'll see it on the official government documents. It's not the Shield of David or the whatever. So just be sensitive of that. Uh, it's in Revelation 13. Speaks of the Antichrist, this, uh, uh, one of the two guys. There's, remember, the Antichrist is really a duet of two guys. As the second guy that exercises all the power of the first beast before him and caused the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. The deadly wound is apparently a, a somehow a... The first beast has a head wound. He's thought of as dead, but he apparently comes back to life. His deadly head wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, that is the second guy here, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. That's something just Elijah used to do, right? And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had the power to do in the sight of the beast, meaning the first beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. In other words, it keeps, whenever he wants to emphasize the first beast, that's always the identity. He had this wound by a sword, and yet he lived. An apparent resurrection from the dead, it would seem. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. He had power to give life to the image of the beast. Most of us think of maybe some kind of elaborate puppet or something. But when you see a movie like King Kong and so forth, and you realize what the technology has done, made possible, I should say, to create lifelike creatures, images of them, uh, it really is breathtaking. And we have the power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as should not worship the image of the beast should be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Strange place to receive an insignia of some kind. In their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Wow. The word there is for the, you know, the seal or the mark is a karagma a seal. A mark in the Torah is prohibited. A tattoo is prohibited. Leviticus 19 and 21, Deuteronomy 14, Isaiah 49, Ezekiel 9, and uh, Exodus 13 are places where that is emphasized. And then the last verse of chapter 13 has spawned more books by more people. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 603 score and 6. And this is the 666. People who know nothing else about the Bible all know about the 666 as being somehow related to the Antichrist. 666. The word in the Greek, Christos, take the first and last letter and put this funny little uh, Greek letter that looks like a snake in between, and you get the Antichristos, the Pseudochrist. And uh, the, the first letter is worth, on the Greek... Uh, Geometric scale is 600, the next one's 60, and the last one's 60. That's, that's the way the 666 shows up in the text. 
by the spelling of the Antichrist, interestingly enough. So we have uh, those three numbers. Anyway, but whose number are we talking about? Not yours, his. It's amazing to me how many people look to insertable chips, you know, or whether it's a, or RFID, radio frequency identification chips, that's a whole new industry coming, or barcodes. They all sort of associate the 666. No, 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 that's backwards. You got it backwards. The bar, some barcode systems do use six as a separator, and so they see the six that both in the middle and both ends. Aha, see that's somehow the 666. Well, it may have some impact. Clearly, electronic funds transfer is an enabling technology for the coming world leader, no question about that. But taking on a credit card number and so forth isn't his number, it's your number. That's not the problem here. It's his number and name that are the critical identity. It's you don't get your credit card unless you take on his insignia. Where do you take his insignia on? Well, apparently on right hand or forehead. There's only one physical description of the Antichrist in the Bible I know about, and that's Zechariah 11:17, Last verse of chapter 11 of Zechariah. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. That's all we know. The speculation, it's a conjecture on the part of uh, some scholars, that because he apparently has an impairment from the sword, he, wo he, he wasn't killed, he's alive, but he has apparently a bad eye and a bad arm. And that's why people taking an identity with him take his insignia on their eye or on their right hand. It's a way of it. If you were going to identify with true, uh, John Wayne and True Grit, you'd get a patch, right? Eye patch, right? And uh, or whatever. Uh, you know, in other words, it's a way of identifying yourself with your hero, and that's apparently that's what it's talking about. And you don't get a pin number or whatever for your ATM machine unless you are in with the good guys and you're aligned. You've declared allegiance to this leader, which if you do, you forfeit any chance of ever being saved. And that's why it's such a big deal in the book of Revelation. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music